Welcome to Midweek Liberty. I'm Jay Dylan Proctor. And I'm Anthony Alegria. And we are in court purgatory for the purposes of bringing you a podcast centered around critical thinking and adventure. Today we're going to be discussing a few different topics. We're going to be answering the question, did the church invent hell? And then we'll be moving on to a conversation about the Ten Commandments. And really, I just want us to take some time and start rethinking the Ten Commandments and their application in our modern world. I realize here as of late, we've really moved away from just cultural topics and a lot of modern themes. We've really been moving in the direction of history, particularly church history, because we can learn so much about where we are now by looking at things in the past. We can learn so much from examining church history. So let's get right into the beginning of this. The question of, did the church invent hell? I bring this up because I have seen a lot of content in our culture in the last few weeks regarding the retired Episcopal Bishop, John Shelby Sponge, or Spong, I'm not quite sure how his last name is pronounced. But either way, I've been seeing a lot of conversation about this, and in 2016, he came out with a statement that said, the church invented hell in order to control people through fear. He basically makes the argument that the concepts of heaven and hell are nothing more than ideas of reward and punishment, which can be used to control people. And even if you're not familiar with the argument by the bishop, you've probably heard some variation of this idea at some point in time in your life. There's an idea out there and there's a whole philosophy that people are converted into Christianity because they're trying to get out of hell. It's a, a conversion out of something. It's in order to escape a punishment, you're going towards something which is a reward. You can promise people a reward, the pie in the sky thing, and that is how people are brought into the church. And this is done so that you can ultimately control people. You even see the argument that Christianity is is the opiate of the masses. Of course, this is Karl Marx's sentiment that religion is the opiate of the masses. But we see variations of this argument all over the place in our culture. So let's talk about this. Because there are some legitimate issues on how we understand hell and the theologies we've developed in our life regarding the concept of hell. And even the conversation of the, the broader notion of controlling people through fear is something we really need to talk about. And I think this is a great time for one to come to the to the table as a pastor and invite the world out there to come in and talk about this because this is a place where we need to do some critical thinking. And interestingly, the think that the solution to this is actually just to learn history. The the questions on the invention of hell and the question of controlling people by fear can be debunked simply by history. And I'm not going to try to con- to change your mind or convert you through some mystical power of control or fear to change your mind, I'm simply going to offer you some historical information and let you decide. So let's begin with the topic of hell. We can look to the Old Testament and see the concept of Sheol. And in the past, we've done other studies and we've talked a little bit more about Sheol. If you want myself to spend some time talking about Sheol with you, reach out to me and we'll, we'll go there. But for now, I want us to look to early church history and stuff in the New Testament. But as far as the Old Testament is concerned, we can see that the Sheol notion, the idea of Sheol, really is where the roots of a lot of our philosophy for hell can be traced as far as the scriptures go. Of course, Sheol refers to the the grave, the land of the dead. It's sometimes even discussed as if it is a person. And Why this is not the exact same language as what we find with Hades in the Greek culture and even other ancient cultures, there's clearly some some roots there to the concept of Sheol. Now, moving on to the topic of control through fear and how that relates to hell is where I want us to move. Because really the heart of this argument of the church inventing hell 
is found, the heart of this is found around the idea of controlling people through fear and punishment and reward. But one quickly finds that you can only make this argument if you are unfamiliar with history or you have selectively edited it. However, most people, including myself when I was younger, are only familiar with church history as as far as it goes in their immediate lives. They only are familiar with church history basically with that which is in the 20th century, maybe a little bit into the 9th century, 19th century. But people don't know a lot about church history beyond their own lives and maybe the lives of their family members. In the 20th century, we've seen this movement, especially in the Protestant world, where there was a catastrophic lack of church history being taught to people. And on top of that, many evangelists did take on a form of preaching that was basically hellfire brimstone, the message of repent or be damned. And there certainly are some serious theological issues with this, but historically speaking, this is not something which is unique to the church as much as it is something which has infected the church. It's a mentality, the whole hellfire brimstone is, that we see all across time and space, and it's not something unique to the church. It has infected the church at points and times, but it's not something unique to the church. Today, we see a lot of devout environmentalists who preach the exact same message, just they have different nouns. Repent of your use of fossil fuels or be damned by nature. The hellfire brimstone preachers carry out the exact same sentiment as modern environmentalists do. Not everybody who's concerned with the environment, but there are people who are religious environmentalists, although they may not realize they're being religious. And they're the exact same as the hellfire brimstone people. They basically say, we have the orthodoxy. If you disagree with this, you are evil. You are guilty of the original sin of, of using modern technology, which is built off of fossil fuels, and repent or be damned. That's what they say. And again, not a lot of critical thinking involved in that. They're usually not even people who are experts in the field, just like the hellfire brimstone people. Will not, we're not generally the top of the, the range theologians and philosophers of their day. But... I bring this up because it's not unique to the church, though it is what a lot of people are familiar with because they're only familiar with 20th century thinking, especially as far as the church goes. However, as we become more familiar with history, especially church history, we realize you really can't make the claim that religion is the opiate of the masses, and you can't make the claim that the church operates on superstition and converts people using fear so that it can control them. And you might ask, well, why can't you make that argument? And we're going to give you some examples, and not only are we going to give you examples, I'm going to challenge you to go out and learn as much about early church history as you can. I trust the due process of your own reasoning skills. As one studies the early church, you will quickly find out that fear was not the mechanism which brought people into the church. So let's go back to the early church centuries. In the first few centuries of the church, the church was a very... Well, it was clearly affected by brutal martyrdom. There's really no nice way of putting it. Not only is this, is this recorded in the book of Acts, but it's also recorded by many historians. Particularly, we're going to talk about the persecution of Leon in 177 AD. And this is recorded by the historian Eusebius, who was a church historian in the ancient world. In the year 177 AD, we see a very terrible example of Christians in the Roman world being persecuted by the local population as well as the Roman government. An outbreak of violence against Christians had emerged, and Christians were prohibited from public places and even the marketplace. Eventually, mobs formed against them and had them arrested and questioned. And eventually, they would be taken to an amphitheater, or something of the effect of an amphitheater, where they would be publicly tortured to death. 
Just as a warning, we are going to be getting into some graphic details. So if this, if the audience is, has children or anything around them, be warned, we are going to get into some graphic things. So the reason why the culture was upset with the Christians is they had three things that they were basically accusing them of. The first of these things was atheism. Yes, believe it or not, the early church was regularly accused of atheism because they did not adhere to the pagan gods of Rome. They didn't adhere to the Roman gods, so they were accused of atheism. The other two things that were charged against them was cannibalism and incest. Cannibalism emerged from a misunderstanding of communion, also known as the Eucharist, and the incest charge emerged from the Christian language of brother and sister, as they would refer to one another. They would say brother, insert name here, or sister, insert name here, and people would misinterpret that to mean that they were actually brothers and sisters, and it would be accusing, it would give them grounds to accuse incest. Of course, some people actually knew better, and they were just twisting the narrative because they hated the Christians. The Roman authorities tortured the Christians in 177 AD, this particular instant, which again, it's not unique to early history, they did this a lot, but in this instance, the persecution of Lyon, the Roman authorities tortured the Christians and tried to get them to denounce their faith, and some did. Although, when they would renounce their faith and admit to the crimes they didn't commit, they would then be tortured and punished for the crimes that they did not commit. There really was no escape for the torture for Christians in this moment. And here we actually get an interesting reference that I want us to share from Eusebius, because it's a reference to hell in his account for this, regarding one of the, the tortured Christians who renounced her faith, and then she went back to re-embrace her faith. And this is a girl named Biblius. And what is interesting about Biblius is, again, there was a lot of Roman persecution going on in the first few centuries. It was not unique for Rome to come and torture Christians to death. But in this case, we've seen a, a particularly heinous act of that happening publicly where mobs were involved. And they would bring people in and try to get them to give up their faith. Again, the, the ones adding force and fear here was not preachers. It was instead, it was Rome. And this girl, Biblius, she had been brought in. She was tortured and she recants her faith. She says, I'm, I confess I'm I'm not really a a believer in this Christ anymore. We were guilty of these things you have accused us for. She gets tortured for that. But then something changes in her mind. And I want us to read this. Anthony, would you read this excerpt from Eusebius? He brought her out to punishment and used force to compel her, already feeble and spirit spiritless, to utter accusations of atheism against us. But during the tortures, she recovered herself, awakening, awaking, as it were out of a deep sleep. For the temporary suffering reminded her of the eternal punishment in hell, and she contradicted the accusers of Christians, saying, How can children be eaten by those who do not think it is lawful to partake in the blood of even a brute beast? And after this, she confessed herself a Christian and was added to the number of the witnesses. Okay, so the reason why this is important is because there's a reference to hell here. In other words, this isn't a recent invention of the church to compel people by fear. But what we see happening is a place where there actually was fear being involved. There is a, a girl, Biblius, who is being tortured. She's being tortured to the point that she recounts her faith. And she, what's interesting from this scenario is they were actually going to let the people who recanted their faith be free. They were going to execute, they were going to make martyrs out of all the people who, 
who would not recant their faith, but she has an opportunity to free herself. She's been tortured. She's already gave up on her faith. But when she sees the children, because they had children here that they were torturing and killing, and a very brutal way they would kill these children, when she's seen this, she is then moved to re-embrace her faith. Again, she's already being tortured. She's already recanted her faith. But she, re- she goes back into the flock after seeing others around her. So we look at this and we have to ask the question, who is the one literally using punishment to force her actions? It's not the church, but it's Rome. They're trying to use fear to turn her away. And that fear is backed up by a serious torture and death. But in rejection of the fear and in admiration of the Christian children being tortured to death, she enters back into the faith. Also at this scene, there was an elderly bishop who was over the age of 90, who was also tortured to death. And at the persecution of Leon, there were several ways that people were killed. Some were fed to the beast for food. This would probably be lions. There were some who were stretched apart. Some suffocated to death in dark dungeons. Some were roasted alive in the hot seat. And unfortunately, this is not a complete list, but people died in a lot of torturous ways. But what is interesting about this conversation is people were turning to faith during this, not because they were afraid of punishment, but because they admired Christ and they admired the faith of his followers. People were being brought into the flock and returning to the flock, not out of fear, but out of admiration. Yes, oddly enough, these sorts of persecutions and tortures were not unique in the ancient church, and they actually brought more people into the faith. It was admiration, not fear, which motivated people. Hence, the church did not invent something to control people. It was the government mobs trying to control people through fear. Admiration was the true motivator of the church, not fear of hell. So let's move along to another character. Let's talk about St. Blaise. St. Blaise was a bishop who lived just a little while after the persecution in Lyon that we just talked about. He lived in the 3rd and 4th century. He died in around 316 A.D., But St. Blaise's story is quite short. He was somebody who, again, was a bishop. He was a a teacher in the church. And he was forced to go into exile in a cave by the Roman persecution. Ultimately, when they found him, they drug him out of the cave and ripped his flesh off with combs. And when we're talking about combs, this is not a nice soft brush to fix one's hair, but is a very torturous way to, to go out. And he died around 316 A.D. Moving about a thousand years later, we see people still being convicted by admiration and not fear. St. Colette of Corby, again, we talked about St. Colette a while back. We talked about St. Blaise as well. These characters, they were convicted not by fear, but by something else. St. Colette was convicted as a teenager to become an anchoress. And an anchoress is a, a female, an anchorite is a man. But these are people who are walled up in the building of a church. They're people who are They basically put them in a cell that's part of the wall and they brick it up and put a seal over it and they give up their personal life to live as part of the church building. Again, this sounds like suffering to a lot of people. A lot of us would be afraid of the notion of being walled up for life, but people embraced this sort of suffering. They didn't run away from it. So I encourage you to study the saints of old and church history. Sure, there are times when corruption leaks into the church. And this is usually when empires infect the church, not when the church is spreading across one. Historically speaking, the church has not been 
of its most prosperous moments when it has this fear-based theology. In fact, we rarely see the church growing under a fear-based theology. Fear of hell, first off, is only relevant to someone who believes in such a hell. And the fear tactic of converting new believers only works if you can sell people fear. In the ancient world, you really couldn't sell people that sort of distant, unforeseeable fear because people had a very visible fear right in front of them. If you lived in the ancient Roman world, the idea of being a Christian would pretty much mean public persecution and torture. That is not something that was far away. You could see it. It was tangible. Basic survival skills tell you to avoid whatever is having people tortured to death. And this argument that fear is the mechanism which converts people, it doesn't hold water when you see the massive amount of torture and suffering that people were, were exposed to in the ancient world. Of course, moving beyond that, after we get past the early persecution of Christians, we still see people moving towards ascetic lifestyles where they're giving up the things which are comfortable in life because they want to move closer to God. They're admiring something and moving towards that. We have a, a painting that is the Prayer of the Martyrs, which is a fascinating piece of artwork. It was commissioned in the 1800s, so it's much newer. It's not actually depicting the persecution of Lyon. But in this moment, we see the many people out being both martyred. Some of them are being tarred and burned on, on crosses, while we see other people that are kneeling around praying in the middle of some sort of amphitheater, coliseum, getting ready to be killed. But these people, they're not motivated by fear. They're motivated by admiration. And I'm so sure of this that I trust you to examine history for yourself. Don't just trust me like I'm some Gnostic prophet, but I trust the due process and I trust the truth. And the church did not invent hell to control people, although there are certainly people who have manipulated a theology of hell to control people. But that doesn't distract from the main point. The main emphasis of the church has not been one that we are going to control people through hell or fear, but it has been one that says we're going to present people with the admirable traits of God. We're going to reveal God to people, and out of that revelation, people will be inspired to live a better life. Anthony? Well, the counter-argument, the counter-argument which states that fear is the mechanism of conversion and control, requires that people who are non-believers be moved by a long-term and unseen punishment than an immediate, tangible punishment that is also visible. It also requires that believers be more moved by a long-term and unseen punishment than their immediate circumstances. And personally, I just don't buy that. This, the whole argument that the bishop is making, a retired bishop, and that a lot of people make, including Karl Marx, who, as they critique Christianity, which again, I'm not going to get into Marx, but there's a whole other set of motives there. But the general sentiment that says religion is all about fear, control, you can really only make that argument if you selectively edit history or are completely unaware of history. Sure, there are times where empires, where governments infect the church and they want to use the government or the church as a tool for government. But if we look at the church by and large, we see all the many characters that are involved in it and all the different forms of, of ministers in the church. It doesn't hold water because accepting the call of Christ had such a cost to it. You were, you were accepting some amount of suffering in order to, to come into the church. So you can only make this argument really in a more modern world where we're so comfortable that we don't have anything to compare to. Again, if you only know enough about church history that the furthest you can think back is like 1950s evangelism where it's hellfire brimstone damnation and you can't compare that to a place where there was real suffering where fear and, and trembling was 
outside your doorstep, then I guess that's where we're at. Anyways, the faith itself, the ministry of Christ, is not one of fear, but it's one of admiration and virtue, which gives us the strength to overcome fear. Yeah, um, another such figure that you could look to for that would be St. Anthony of Egypt, and the image that we have of him is a modern depiction. But uh, St. Anthony of Egypt, he was not compelled by fear to live an ascetic lifestyle. He wasn't compelled by fear to donate his family's estate, and he wasn't compelled by fear to basically start also the like the foundations of the monastic lifestyle he did he's he's credited with founding the first monastery he did all these things in the name of what was virtuous and admirable it's said that he was compelled and convicted to donate all of his family's estate that he had inherited as the result of a sermon now these these were not times of the same persecution that the romans were the Roman Christians were facing, but there wasn't anything to fear. There weren't Christians saying that if you didn't donate everything that you had inherited, you would be going to hell. I mean, maybe in regards to stewardship, but I, I don't see that either. What you, we do see is that, you know, donating to the poor is an extremely admirable thing. People who are truly suffering and struggling, giving to them what you do not need is extremely admirable. And that's what he pursued. Yeah, you really do see a lot of people embracing what we would consider punishment, and then moving from there. Well, anyways, we're going to wrap this up now, and we'll be back with the Ten Commandments here in shortly. Our culture is in great need of saving, and it is quite near the edge of chaos. I want us to take a few moments to go back and re-examine the Ten Commandments, and especially what role they serve in society. One who is not a Christian may say these are objectively good, although the first few are a bit strange, and they're only relevant and unique to those who believe in God. They're irrelevant to atheists, agnostics, and so forth and so on. However, I really do want us to take some time to rethink these early commandments, particularly the very first one, the commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. As with many theological concepts, if we dive deep into the world of critical thinking, there is a remarkably rational, and even very obvious once you see it, reason for respecting this commandment. And it basically boils down to this. Don't, change, don't treat things which do not surpass human limitations, as if they surpass human limitations. In other words, don't treat things which are not all-powerful as if they are all-powerful. Do not treat limited things as if they are transcendent things. Do not make things which are not transcendent out to be transcendent. And I know I've basically restated that sentence several different times with a few different synonyms in there, but basically it means don't make things out to be God or a God that are not God. Even in the ancient world, as we look at a lot of places that are polytheistic, none of the gods in a polytheistic system really are all-powerful. None of them are transcendent. They're not able to surpass all the limitations of the universe. But God is capable of surpassing the limitations of the universe. And in our modern world, we have a lot of people 
who treat things like the government as God. Now, they may not go out and go to a religious service or do some sort of objective worship of government, but they have this mentality that says the government is able to surpass all limitations. The government is the solution. It is the thing which can fix all problems. And that's a problem. When we fool ourselves that things which are not transcendent are actually free of limitations, then we have pretty well duped ourselves. And this is really what the Ten Commandments is, is communicating, that only one thing in, in the universe is transcendent, and that is God. Do not be tricked into thinking the, the God of Egypt or the Pharaoh has all power. You just left there, which is where the Ten Commandments come from in the, the Exodus account. Don't be tricked into this. A lot of people do actually think that the, the government is the solution for all their problems. But in reality, we know that government is not free from human limitations, nor is it free from corruption. Therefore, don't trick yourself into thinking this. In the 2016 presidential election, there were a lot of people who were drastically upset as if their whole world had collapsed. It was a, a scene that you would expect as if the Babylonian exile had just happened and people watched Jerusalem fall. They believed that the government was the transcendent source of morality and that that was just taken away from them, which is a very dangerous place to be. I want us to watch a clip from the X-Files real quick, and then we will discuss this. Agent Scully. Oh, Dr. Carpenter, I fell asleep. I've done some work. These are the DNA sequences from the bacteria sample you brought in. You seem to know something about molecular biology. You know what you're looking at? Yeah, I think those are genes. Right. They're called base pairs. Each pair is made up of something called a nucleotide. Only four nucleotides exist in DNA. Four. And through some miracle of design that we have yet to fathom, every living thing is created out of these four basic building blocks. What you're looking at is a sequence of genes from the bacteria sample. Normally, We'd find no gaps in the sequence. But with these bacteria, we do. Why is that? I don't know why. But I tell you, under any other circumstances, my first call would have been to the government. All right. What exactly did you find? A fifth and sixth DNA nucleotide. That was the statement I wanted us to catch. So basically what's happening in the scene is they've found something with alien DNA. And the lady makes the statement. She comes in to Dana Scully, who's one of the main characters in The X-Files. She comes in and says, under any other circumstance, my first call would have been to the government. And that is a serious crisis in one's worldview. This is the mentality where people have replaced God with other things. And no, I'm not actually making the case here that we might expect one to make. I'm not going to bring up the whole thing with the whole base pairs. They can't fathom where the base pairs come from. The point I want to make is this. is She says my first call would have been to the government, as if the government is capable of handling the situation. Rationally, the first person that should have been called in this would be experts in this field. In other words, people who were experts in, in DNA. This is the type of people that you would want to call. It should have been an exciting moment of discovery and intellectual expansion. But such is not the case when people start treating other things as transcendent. Anyways, I'll, I want us to wrap up our conversation there, but I really want us to ponder this. 
What happens when we make things which are not transcendent out to be transcendent? When we treat things as being all-powerful when they're not? Anthony? Well, I will say, too, that um, the there's not only a lot of moral issues that can come about from this because, you know, I mean, that's basically idolizing the government. And even without, if you don't consider idolizing things, you know, sinful or anything like that, if you even remove that connotation, idolizing the wrong things can objectively be negative. Yeah. You know, if a young child has a bad idol, then, you know, they're going to pursue that type of idol and try to embody it themselves. So obviously there's an objective reason to not idolize things that are not transcendent. Oh, yeah. We see this all the time. People getting upset with how like Miley Cyrus and Justin Bieber turn out. These people are not God. Don't idolize them. Don't idolize celebrities. They are not truly moral people. Or some of them may be, but it's it's not a given just because they're a celebrity or you made them out to be an idol that they're a source of morality. Don't don't trust the government to be the source of morality. Let God be the source of morality. Yes. And there's a real practical problem with that. I think that I think that is um that's a big like, you know, like that is a problem, but then it goes even further whenever you look at the the fact that whenever you're treating it as though it's all powerful, think about how much it's gonna let you down. I mean, literally, like, just objectively think, okay, I'm going to decide to make something that's not all-powerful, all-powerful in my life. Yeah. How often is that seriously going to be a huge letdown? Yeah, it's it's expectations which can't be fulfilled. So I really want you to rethink some of these early commandments. And, I mean, it's, it's actually quite obvious. Don't treat other things as God that aren't God. A lot of times we look at this as being just a spiritual thing, but it's a very much a practical thing. So anyways, I really want us to spend some time rethinking the Ten Commandments. We're going to come back to the rest of them in the, the upcoming series. But anyways, we just wanted to, to add that one right there. Well, if you enjoyed our program, please subscribe. You can find us on YouTube, SoundCloud, CastBox, and iTunes. And of course, you can also find us on Facebook. And on that, have a blessed day.